0: Welcome to Code the podcast for hungry web developers. I'm your co-host today, Vincent, and with me is...
1: Herman Gamboa. and today for the first time we finally have a sponsor guys so today's episode is brought to you by the letter a no, i'm explaining. it's brought to you by us it's by it's brought you by coach chefs we're our own first sponsors and one thing we wanted to do we want to start doing is actually mentioning the people that follow us and highlighting them because they're highlighting us as well so and today the latest review and that we have gotten is from alan quake thank you alan quake for giving us a review and a follow on twitter and if you want to go ahead and if your name mentioned in this segment at some point, follow us at CodeChef's on Twitter. Not CodeChefsRegular, regular, because that's something different, but CodeChefsDev. Vincent, do you want to go ahead and take it away with today's episode?
0: Yeah. So for today's topic, we're gonna to be talking about creative development with WebGL, SVG, and Canvas. So I kind of want to talk about what creative developers are, more like creative front-end developers in particular, and how it differs from just like traditional front end developers or engineers. So to kind of get this off, um when you're talking about front end development today, I guess in this this age of 2021 or 2020, generally speaking, if you're building like a like a functional web app, something that has like many interactive interactive components to the site, maybe it's like a, a CRUD app for handling different transactions to payments or like a portal for adding notes on a note taking app. If you're building of with rich user functionality experiences, you're gonna generally reach for a tool like React or Vue or Angular, right? And this is more focused on more of a practical mindset. For building something that is feature-rich that actually helps someone in their, in their day-to-day job or their day-to-day life, Jeremy, can you talk more about like more about like what front-end developers do in general, or just to expand upon that experience?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about like just general front end development, which is I guess what we do on a day-to-day basis. At least I know what I do. that's what I do in a day-to-day, which is just basically like we make a, we make forms. Let's just call it, let's just say it how it is. We make a lot of it's just dealing with a lot of yeah, it's just dealing with a lot of crud, like a lot of uh create read update type deals. So it's basically like your your standard like back end business app for at least that's what I work in. So we'll be we'll be making forms. Obviously, we want to use tools like React Vue, some dynamic stuff. So we we can actually add like specific validation to those forms because those forms have like different business logic It's not just like make sure the field's required it'll be something like go ahead and check the database for it to make sure that this field's valid make sure this person has the right permissions to even access this field so it helps us go ahead and do all that all those things but that they're like there's, i'm trying to look for the best name for them um for the name best name to say it it's like I don't want to call them just necessarily backend office type applications because they're also like things that you do in the front end, right? But at the end of the day, it's like your typical. Let's just call it a business app. I'm trying. I'm struggling for a name. Do you know, do you know like any better name for that? Vincent?
0: It's like an admin dashboard. A lot, a lot of a lot of React or front end development is basically a dashboard where it's like uh, you have different roles and permissions, and depending on the user that's logged in, they see different things on the web page for basically interacting with this different business functions within that business unit. So in a sense, it's it's most development on the front end, at least for, for, for like React or Vue or Angular development, is what's considered kind of boring CRUD development, where everything is just like read, update, create, and delete for the most part. And looking at basic analytics, it's usually like the most simplistic design possible when you're executing this out on the website. Right, and it's all different types of industries. Yeah, definitely. It could, could be in e-commerce, it could be in note-taking, it could be in the financial industry. Just many different industries throughout the, across the board. And that's the vast majority of like jobs out there. But there's a whole separate subsection of front-end developers out there that are kind of more specialized in interactive development, right? So this this is something called a creative developer, so someone that can take animations to the site, that can that can add like very fancy CSS tricks to the site, that can add just like that wow factor when you initially go to that page and you're just like blown away by this like completely amazing design that you've never seen before. That is what we call a creative developer. Someone who's more about the wow factor as as opposed to like the practical experience side. I mean, most of these wow sites generally tend to be very practical as well, in that it has to actually you have to actually be able to navigate the page. You have to actually be able to like find different parts of the page. Whether it's like, hey, if you're on a blog site, for instance, that has that wow factor, can you find the blog links? Can you find the about page? Is it is it site friendly for web crawlers? Um, so it's still conforming to the same boring crowd apps, but it also adds that wow and that oomph to it, right? So, German, do you, do you have some examples of like what you'd consider to be like? creative developer websites that you just we could name a few just just as examples
1: uh yes so the first one comes to mind is so a long time ago i did work for a for an agency so actually a lot of like special like design agencies their websites will be have that wow fact to showcase what they can do right so they'll be like highly highly interactive uh the one example i can give here is the one from 321 the agency they have a really cool website where you're obviously scrolling like it's like it's kind of like let's call it like a slideshow and it's really interactive you have background elements moving it the pay, the website seems alive in a sense right so the other ones that are highly interactive apart from those would be like the ones that are especially like sometimes companies will create special ones for experiences and Vincent, I think you actually work on a website that was like interactive, like it was an interactive experience, like for like a marketing purpose, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so sometimes when you work with Fortune 500 companies, they want to have they have a large marketing budget for basically building out sites to to gain traction, to to get more media attention to themselves if they're doing like a big press release or anything like that. So, I actually worked on a a, a virtual escape room. That was part of like an event for one of these Fortune 500 companies, and it was probably one of the most interesting products I've ever worked on because we actually ran a 3D game engine on the web, and it's based off of WebGL. But we're using something called Babylon.js to handle all the how that how that scene is rendered on the page. So it was like this was during like peak COVID season, right? And people were at home. You know, we didn't have like the traditional office room, so we didn't have like the traditional office spaces, and so. was kind of like that 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 collaboration aspect of like working together that was kind of missing out so there's been a lot of different companies that have been pushing initiatives for like different co-working collaborative office spaces in a sense and one of the projects that i worked on was for for conferences so you would go on this site and this site you'd be immediately immersed into like a video game right so it's like if you're playing like Doom or something, or if you're just like in a first person shooter game, it's like, it felt like that. And you can navigate the space that was created, that we created in Unity, right? And you can interact with different uh, things in that space. If Maybe you could click like a certain billboard on a page, it would open up a modal and that modal will give more information about maybe what that, what that person was doing at that site. So we had that element and then we had like an escape room aspect to it too where it's like you can actually go into the escape room and there was like this whole puzzle schematic that you'd have to like figure out like how to get out of right so if you guys aren't familiar with the escape rooms that's kind of like a new trend that's been out for the last couple of years where you and a couple group of friends pre-covid of course get together and you have to like solve a puzzle and you have like an hour and there's usually like a theme to it so the first time i've done like a, a escape room it's like hey you're in like a california gold rush and you're, the whole cave collapsed, and you have to figure out how you're going to escape out of here before you run out of air. So it's the same concept, but we took it to essentially an online website that's basically running a game in that instance. So, so it, it's really interesting to see. It, it's not exactly informative; it's more like fun and collaborative. So it does have that um factor built into it. But, but yeah, we we actually had the three D engine, then we had like react on top of it and then react would actually interact with different parts of that of that environment um, for popping out like little puzzles that would come up or any challenges that to be solved and like transitioning from one room to another so there was a lot of things that we had to figure out but we also did another one German too like me and you we've actually built an online video game at one point we did it at a hackathon you want to talk about that
1: yeah so I oh know man that was the uh, it was like it was a game jam. Mm-hmm. It was a our asteroids. It was like an asteroid destroy type video game. It was originally going to be multiplayer, but difficulties happen when you're working overnight and you have like two days to do something. But uh, it was this experience where you can basically like shoot each other. <laughs> but the cool <laughs> thing about it is, it, it was actually. It's a lot of things you have to. Con- you don't consider when you're actually making a normal like website, right? So you're considering like the sound design, the animations, the way people experience it. Just so in essence, the best way you described it was just, like it's a video game. You're like jumping into a video game, uh, and I know a lot of the like, new conference ones. And the way you described it reminds me. And I know a lot of a lot of people in the past have used like Second Life as a place to like hold meetings. Oh yeah, to that's another um, video game, right? Yes, the really old one. So. I say old because it's been out for like ever. I mean, I, I played it when I was a kid, so it's it's been out forever.
0: And we have that nowadays. It's like Roblox. That's what yeah. you can have like Roblox is kind of like Minecraft 2.0 in a sense, where you can have like your own custom modded games and you can go on your phone or go on your iPad or go on your computer and play it right then and there. And you can have conference rooms inside of there, too. So similar experience. Definitely. We should go back
1: to the. uh, Go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say we should go back to the asteroid game and add a conferencing experience to it.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. actually, a lot of companies are doing that right now. At the time of recording, Uh, there's a couple companies that are building like WebRTC interfaces. So like, you've got like almost like a Pokemon video game, right? And then, and then you have like all of your characters on the screen. And if you walk up next to each other, pushing like the left, up, right, down arrows, it'll pop up like a like a, a webcam, a webcam like of the person, like at the top of the screen. And then you can see, like, you could talk to people right then and there. And if you move away from from the character on the screen, the game interface, um, that webcam will co- go away because you're no longer next to that person. So you're, no, you're not having a conversation next to that person anymore. And there are a lot of companies that are actually pushing that out just because of COVID. So that that is one example of creative development in a sense where you're kind of pushing the limits and boundaries of what previous web apps were capable of. But back to the gaming hackathon, we did do an episode on this previously, so you could definitely listen on that one. But when it comes to like creative development, there's more there's more storyboarding, right? There's more storyboarding figuring out what the user experience is gonna be like. So I remember when we were building out that video game, we had to think about, hey, like when the user hits a page. How are they going to be immersed in the experience? Uh, what kind of audio are you playing? How do we put in the sound intro bites? How do we do everything and have like a, a menu loading screen before this, so people can go into different chat rooms and player rooms before they then go into the video game itself? So when, when you're talking about a creative developer or someone who does creative development, there's much more. There's much more storyboarding. There's much more you have to figure out how an animation is is going to affect the user experience. How is a transition from one page to another going to work? And, and this is just more things to consider, right? So there's more there's more interaction with the designer as well when you're working on a creative website. And another good example, there is a local agency in town called MV Labs. That was like another example we didn't mention earlier. They actually have like they have an animator like a, someone who actually does animations in Adobe After Effects. And then they export that off to something called Lottie. And then you actually import that file and actually play that animation on the website itself. But then there's also like a creative designer that also handles how like interactions are handled on the page as you scroll down the page. And definitely check out their site. That's really cool. It's really, really highly polished. So you'll see a lot of like these creative development roles, and generally speaking, at like agencies that build sites for big marketing firms. I guess to to bring it off to the next next topic, what what kind of skills do creative developers need, German?
1: So as far as my understanding, uh, creative developers are gonna need to work with more interactive sections of what's in the browser. So obviously we have SVGs, which we know we can animate like crazy. I say we know, but I'm not 100% familiar with it. Uh, there's obviously the canvas element, which you can do a lot of crazy stuff with canvas, right? A lot of the times we're trying to animate like things like HTML elements, and they get and like the website just slows down and gets janky. It's one of those times where you should pretty much reach for something like something like SVGs, canvas. There's also WebGL, which is really cool. Uh, like I seen like some crazy things on CodePen with with WebGL, and obviously you can always just like if you if you're if you like if it's a little bit simpler, you can obviously just go straight CSS animations. And there's a lot of different techniques and things you can do in there as well. So I guess we'll go ahead and dive in a little bit more into detail of about each section. So uh, Vincent, I know you gave actually was it was it your first meetup talk ever? like proper meetup talk because I remember you used to do a lot of uh, lightning talks, but I think your first proper meetup talk was actually on this topic sorry on SVG and WebGL.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the topic was actually called rendering tail. SVG versus Canvas versus WebGL. And I remember going to the meetup organizer for Orlando JS at the time, as it, uh, it was Carlos Souza. He was like, hey, like, does anyone want to talk for, have a, have a presentation for the next topic? And that was like one month later, it was like around December that that announcement came around. I'm like, well, I kind of want to do a topic on something that I want to learn. And I knew nothing about <laughs> any of these, these things about, I didn't knew nothing about creative development period. And I'm like, I really want to do a topic on creative development. So I picked out three different topics or three different subtopics that I felt were relevant to all creative developers, and like you were saying, it's SVGs, HTML Canvas, and WebGL. And so I remember spending like, I think like probably over a hundred hours preparing that meetup talk because I just spent like every day like researching the topic, going on like Udemy and and Pluralsight and egghead.io and, you know, front end masters and just like going through every topic and video I could find on this topic, just, just about creative development period of how people create interactive experiences and how they create sites that go onto the all awards website. So to get, to get to like the topic itself, uh, one of the first things that you learn as a creative developer is how SVGs work and SVG stands for scalable vector graphics, Right. So the difference between like a scalable vector graphic versus like a regular image or PNG or JPEG or TIFF or whatever you want to call it is it's all mathematically based. So the entire file is based off lines, and those lines are all because it's all mathematically written. Like like if you're on like Illustrator and you draw like, hey, I want to draw a line here, and this line is this line's endpoint is connected to this line and then that line is then connected to that line, which then creates a triangle. But I want to add like a, a bezier point that makes it curved or something. I don't know. That's all mathematically driven, right? In a sense, because you're telling like your, your, your illustrator or maybe if you're using a Figma designer, like this is how this image is created. And so when you throw it on the web, that image can be whatever resolution you want because it's mathematically related. So you can make it like 100px wide or like a thousand px wide, and it'll still look really good, regardless of whatever whatever screen size you're on on the page. And this is a little different from what's called a raster image. So this is like, for instance, if you take like a picture on your phone, right, and you upload it, and then you put that on the website. Depending on how big the resolution on that picture is, it could either, like, when you upscale it upwards, like if you took like a hundred by hundred image and you're zooming in really far away or you just shot an image on your phone and you didn't zoom in, it's like really distorted and blurry. If you like, you know, go all the way and, and, and blow up the image. Right. That same concept. Uh, if you have like a hundred, hundred by hundred PX image is it's all like, it's not, it's not mathematically based. It's just a bunch of like pixels on the screen or pixels on an image. If you blow it up to a thousand PX, it's going to look really blurry and distorted. Right. And, and the same, and the issue also with like handling images is, if you're if you're in second upload like a thousand px by a thousand px image, and you were to like for instance like shrink it down, now you have to upload a huge image to your site every time, which means slower loading experiences, and it means your your site doesn't perform as quickly. Yeah, and then uh, what other questions do you have regarding SVGs, German?
1: Yeah, an overview of SVGs. So, uh, I guess the one question I've always had with SVGs is, what's the best tools to design them with? Because I don't, I don't think people actually go ahead and like just hand code SVGs, right? So, I think you you use like different tools, like uh, uh, what's the one from Adobe? I always forget the name of it.
0: XD or Illustrator. Illustrator. Illust-
1: yeah, you'll go ahead and kind of kind of design your stuff there, right? And then. Yeah. is there is there another tool to like like design the animation frames or is that something you have to do by hand?
0: So it depends there are tools out there to help you animate an SVG afterward so so you would design that that file originally in illustrator fan designer you can even do it in figma Just any tool that handles vector graphics and you would build out the entire thing right and you can export the SVG afterward like you can like highlight and grip it up. Into different sections and then export it off and then save that file and then put it on the web. And then that's when you can apply like CSS or specific SVG animations onto that element to animate it a certain way or a certain direction. And there's actually libraries for handling that as well. But if you want something more robust and controlling like how your animations appear from that actual SVG asset or that drawing or whatever you're making, You can also load it into After Effects, which is like a program for doing special effects for movies. You can do animations there too. And there are actually tools online as well for
1: Oh, it's also for video.
0: It is, but so you can actually you can actually export it to After Effects. And then in After Effects, there is a plugin called Lottie that then exports off that asset. Oh no, sorry, I'm getting it backward actually. You wouldn't export it over to After Effects. You would create everything in After Effects from scratch, right? You create everything from After Effects from mm-hmm. scratch, and then there is a plugin through After Effects called Lottie, which you—it's it's created by Airbnb. Um, they use it for a lot of their animations on on their on their mobile app. You'd export off that that asset, and it'll give you like a one-line JavaScript file, and you would throw that JavaScript file. On your page, and it's like probably like one or two megabytes large, and then that has all of it handles all of your your creation of your of your of your animations on the page. If that makes sense, so that's one way. The other way is like the other way is just drawing the file out and then uploading it to the web, and then using CSS or animation properties to modify it. There's also libraries out there that you could use with your SVG. For instance, there's one called Anime.js that. Like lets you like handle motion pathing. It might allow you to morph your SVG into different shapes. So it's like here's your start state and here's your end state. You can also animate line drawings. You can also just do basic animations that you would traditionally get with something like uh, GSAP, which is Green Spring Animation. And, and there's a lot of other things you could do. So it just really depends what you're looking for.
1: My next question was be like, so I know the next thing would be like the next thing is Canvas. What, is there like a like a specific decision that you make when you're using in between using SVG and between using Canvas?
0: Yeah, so so there is a specific decision when you're dealing with HTML canvas versus SVGs. So with HTML Canvas, what it is is it's essentially like a, a drawing board of sorts that so you just throw on a page, right? And you have to Instantiate this this HTML canvas element, right? And when you instantiate it, you it actually has to be re-rendered every time you upload a new change to that canvas element. So if you've ever seen like physics simulations on a web page or anything that's like like a bunch of bubbles like bouncing around on the screen, that's like a classic example of of HTML canvas. It's actually done in a lot of video tutorials as well. Uh, So HTML canvas is good for something that has that has a lot of objects on a page, right? So when you're writing things in HTML canvas, you're actually writing things in a very object oriented manner and that you'll have like a constructor function for constructing objects on the page. Mm-hmm. And then those objects might be bouncing and doing different things. And, and like when we were building out our, for instance, our video game for that Asteroid Battlegrounds and that hackathon, that's all in the background running HTML canvas. So, things that are very highly interactive, that require a lot of re renders, that require a lot of different things that are happening within a scene or environment that has logic attached to it, that's when you'll use HTML Canvas. That's not to say you can do it with SVGs, but when you're dealing with SVGs, you're essentially doing interactions with HTML DOM elements. If you're doing inline SVGs, which is like if you inspect the page, you can see like your SVG tag and then your g path or your g tag and your path elements inside, which is like describing how like, that SVG is rendered on a page, that's a little different. So uh, to answer your question, uh, you would do it when you're doing with something that has a lot of re-renders. So, or if you're doing something that has like a huge amount of stuff on a page. So for instance, a really good example of this is if you're building like a video game or you're building like, like the million-dollar homepage, for instance. I don't know if you remember that thing back in the day where it's like you can pay $100 for a spot on your screen and that used to be like really big back in like 2011. You do that with HBO canvas because you can draw an image to the canvas, and you can zoom into the canvas, and that canvas could be like a million pixels wide, right? It just as long as your server can handle loading that asset on the page, right? So if you're doing with anything that has like a, like a zooming or zoom out function, or something that that, that takes up way too much space on a page. They have to scroll left and right or up and down. You want to run Canvas on that, just because doing it any other way would be too difficult. If that makes sense. Got it.
1: Yeah, that reminds me. Is it wasn't that similar? Similar to like uh, I think Reddit did that a while ago. It was like a giant Canvas. Where you could just draw whatever you wanted.
0: Yeah, I was actually a moderator for that. Um, yeah, I was. I was actually one of the mods for that. I, I actually did a lot of documentation for that when they were posting different beams and when those beams were destroyed at like exactly that minute in that hour. That was all written in HTML Canvas. That's that's literally hundreds of thousands of users cool. putting a pixel on a screen and saying, this is my pixel at this given point. And all these other users are doing it at the same time. So you have to figure out like things are constantly just constantly re-rendering on the page. So just anything that requires a lot of re-renders, a lot of like highly interactive states that can't really be described with the traditional DOM element or HTML manipulation. HTML element manipulation on the page. You would generally run in Canvas. There are cases like so for Canvas. There is like a hybrid library out there that uses both Canvas and SVGs, and I thought this would be worth mentioning. It's this library called Zdog, mm-hmm. which came out about two years ago. It was actually inspired by a code pen that like this guy made a code pen of this video game called Celestial, which is like a two D platformer game, and he like wrote this like whole interface for like how. This 2D canvas would render 3D elements on the page. Because canvas, normally, traditionally, you're just thinking of things on a 2D plane. But he wrote like a game engine in 2D canvas for generating those assets on the page. So that is a library worth mentioning. But traditionally, HTML canvas, for the most part, is only for handling 2D content on a page. Or you would traditionally only use it for 2D content on a page. Like you wouldn't think of it as like a th- tool that you'd use in 3D. If that makes sense. SVGs you technically can if you use the transform if you use the transform CSS properties for translating how that element appears on a page. But Canvas, you don't generally think of it as anything but 2D. For 90% of cases, at least.
1: So I guess that kind of sets up the questions for our next topic, which is how do we actually do 3D applications on the web browser?
0: So 3D applications on the web browser today is done through like if you're talking about like a video game that you put online like like the one we did for for the hackathon that one for the hackathon was actually for the it was html mm-hmm. canvas because that uses Phaser.js, which I might, I might be mistaken but it it I believe it primarily just runs on html canvas it might be running webGL first which is the topic and it has a fallback to html canvas but traditionally when you're building a 3D in 3D game on on the web or a 3D experience on the web you'd be dealing with something called WebGL which stands for Web Graphics Library. There's actually two versions of it right now, and it's actually based off another protocol called OpenGL, which I don't really need to. Get to. But basically, it lets you have something called shaders in your environment. Like you have textures, you have shaders. So when you're spinning up, uh, for instance, like a basic triangle on a page, you have to specify how that triangle gets loaded on there how it gets like how it gets shaded in terms of like how the colors actually look on that triangle itself. And that that gets into more like how would you build like an entire graphics engine <laughs> afterward using using just that bare mm. minimal interface. So when people talk about WebGL, it can be very complicated to talk about if you're building something that's from scratch. Like if you're building like a simulation library for like a physics simulation where like two fluids coming together, and those fluids kind of like it showcases interaction between those. That would be done in just WebGL. If if you're if you want like a more practical mindset of like how can I build something with like a three D experience on the web, you would generally use a WebGL library, which handles all like the 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 linear algebra and matrix math behind the scenes for how things are rendered. It's basically like a mini mini a mini three D engine of sorts built on WebGL. So you would generally use something called 3.js or Babylon.js, which is both for like building that video game experience. There is another one also called pixie.js, which is building more of like a 2D platformer video game, kind of like phase, like the 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 hackathon they we were talking about earlier. Where if you're like having like mm-hmm. like for instance, like a like different characters on the page, like shooting like a, like a weapon and then that, that thing hits like an asteroid and then like that something explodes and then you want to have like different like shadows and shaders and like different particle effects coming off of that. It would be very hard to do that in just traditional HTML canvas because you're just drawing just straight pixel on the page. With WebGL you can have shaders and those shaders let you have more of like a oomph effect I guess you could say. It gives you more depth perspection. Uh, so so that that's generally speaking like how do you think of like WebGL, right? It's still creating a canvas object behind the mm-hmm. scenes, but that's, that's how WebGL works. Do you want me to expand upon like some of the popular libraries, I guess, on like the, the ones I just mentioned, like 3.js?
1: Yeah, I think 3.js is the most popular one. And I think that's the one you'll most often see with WebGL and whenever you're going through like CodePen, which is where people will post like their craziest and more experimental like stuff. But like, what's, have you actually worked with 3.js before, Vincent?
0: So the project that I worked on previously was actually Babylon.js, which is very, very similar to JS. It's just Babylon comes shipped out with a lot of additional things that 3.js doesn't specify off the bat. So Babylon.js gives you like the entire environment, whereas like 3.js just is like gives you the bare-bones implementation of just how something's going to be rendered in 3D. That makes sense. So with 3.js, so just... Is I did do a topic on this, kind of explaining how it works in a nutshell. When you're doing anything in WebGL, anything period in WebGL, it actually runs through your graphics cards. So if you pop open a website that's running WebGL, like the whole interface solution, like the bare bones implementation of like how something gets rendered 3D in space, that's going to run through your graphics card, right? And then you can actually hear your graphics card spinning up if it's if it's doing a lot of calculations to figure out how like. That thing is rendered in 3D space. So, like I said, with 3JS, it handles all the calculations for you because it is a game engine of sorts that handles the linear algebra, matrix math, and whatever. And the way you usually specify how 3JS operates is you usually define a scene, right? And the best way to think about when you're doing 3D game development is you have to think about, you have to kind of think about like a scene in a movie. Like You have the scene, like the entire environment that the, that the main character is in, for instance, let's say we're talking about Harry Potter. I don't know, just, just some random, just some random example. You have the scene, right? If they might be at Hogwarts, they might be at, they might be at a different, different point in the scene. And then you have like a camera and that camera faces like a certain person or a certain perspective, right? And it could be a certain distance away from that subject. And then you have to have what's called Mm -hmm. like a a render, which then renders both the scene and the camera. So generally, if you're watching like a tutorial on, for instance, like Blender or any game development, that's literally just like, let's put the box on the screen and put a camera (laughs) facing that box. That's literally the first three things you do, right? And then afterward, for instance, if you have that box on the screen, you have to specify what's called a mesh, which is like, Kind of like what's that shape of that box is it like is it more of like a circle or is it more of like like a like a, or like a rectangle or is it more of like a cube like what's the shape of that element and there's different specifications of what kind of shapes you can use and they're all mathematically described generally speaking so you can have like cylinders you can have conal shapes i don't remember there's like another like a like the like the infinite donut shapes as well um uh, you specify the shape up front taurus taurus yeah or you can upload your own shapes that's based on a combination of different shapes, right? And then you have like your meshes, or sorry, your your geometries and your materials. Oh, sorry, that was a the geometry. Then you have your materials, right? Which is like the thing that's applied directly on the shape itself, which is like, hey, this is what that shape looks like. I've got a person, that person's got a circular head. They've got like a rectangular body frame and rectangular arms coming out. <laughs> and it, it's, not, it's not exactly that, like, like it's much more in depth than that because it's all at the end of the day re- rendered by a bunch of triangles. Everything in graphics development is, is triangles. Like like how those polygons are created, they're all just a bunch of triangles put together. But um, you have to put a, a, a texture pack on top of it. To say like this is what this person looks like, right? Like you're, you're like this is what their face looks like. This is what their body looks like. Like it's the actual coloration on like a on like a on like an object. So f- to the best example of thinking of this is like. If you're sculpting, like if you're physically sculpting an object, for instance, like you got like a, you've got a, you got clay, like you're doing pottery or whatever, and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're kind of like meshing that, that, that pottery together. Right. And you, you finish finding your shape and then you paint it. Right. That, that is basically what you consider as your material, right? You're painting like a final finish on top and then you throw in the kiln and then it comes out and it's finished. Uh, same concept. And then at the very end, you have to apply lights. Mm-hmm. Lights is like where are your light sources in that environment in that space. So you've got your scene, your camera, your renderer, your mesh, your geometry, material, and lights. And these are all specifications you would say on most like 3D game engines. If that makes sense for specifying at least like how that experience is going to work. And Babylon JS is very similar. Pixie.js, because it's 2D, it's it's not nearly as in-depth, but that's, generally speaking, how you work with like a 3D library that is running WebGL in the background.
1: Got it. Oh my god, that's actually intense.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it can get really complicated, so that's why there's actually, when you see jobs on the market, there are specific jobs that are specifically for these subsections of front-end developers, because this this is all part of the the front end development field or creative. front end developers slash engineers. Uh, creative developers is a subsection of those developers that are more skilled in animations and specific like highly interactive libraries for creating highly interactive experiences. I mean it is a wow factor, but if you're building like a it's it's sometimes also a practical factor too. So for instance, like if you're building that that experience, like for instance, using WebGL, like a video game, that a lot of times is, is used for like, hey, I wanna see like, if I go to like thingiverse.com, which is like a place where you can like see like 3D assets for 3D printing, you can actually like click on that image and like scroll it around and see it from different perspectives. That is running something like Three JS, so you can see that information on the page. So it can be practical in a sense, because you're rendering information that can be played around with in different contexts, so the user has a better idea of what they're looking at. It just depends on the project and what you're building and whether it's necessary, that makes sense. Yeah, another example, actually, um, I don't know if this is out already, but um, I remember Nike, was it, no, it was Vans. Vans was trying to build like, an e-commerce page where like you could customize your shoe and like put down like different configurations on your shoe and that would run in like a 3js in like a an environment and then you could actually paint your shoe different colors and then you can order that custom set of shoes and you could see what it looks like before you order it if that makes sense. Like, you could see the color schemas, you could see Oh, with, um, Yeah, yeah. So e-commerce is with web, web AR? So web AR would be something that it would run on your phone, right? When you have like it, augmented reality experiences where you're like you take your phone and then like you have the 3d image asset and you want to see what it looks like in the environment this is just if you want to see what the shoe looks like on the page before you buy the shoe not not like actually seeing it in your environment but like yeah webAR is a whole different thing most of these game engines actually with Webgl you can actually like like for instance Babylonjs or 3js they actually supports gyroscopic apis they could run through just like the standard html apis. So if you have a, if you have that if you have a if you have a your phone you're running that game on your phone, um, it'll actually pull through like the html or sorry that your your devices gyroscopic apis and you can actually see how that environment looks at different positions as you're like literally waving your phone around. But that that goes into the integrations of device gyroscopic apis that are generally available when you go onto a website like you, the, the the browser to my knowledge, can actually request that information, or an app can actually request that information from the device. So that that is more of the AR aspect. So it can get like really in-depth in, in terms of like how far you want to go into that. It's a very complex topic. That's why there's like specific positions that are specifically for that. And, and a lot of times, if you have previous game development experience, a lot of those concepts are very similar when you're developing in a WebGL library, like 3.js or whatever.
1: Definitely. I think we can move on to something a little bit simpler and more familiar to most of us, which is CSS animations. <laughs> Because I know that's something we we kind of used to, right? And you can get pretty crazy with CSS animations. Like we were down talking about CSS sprites. I saw a pretty cool like thing on CodePen the other day. I didn't save it, but it was a sprite animator. So you could actually have like a you had like a way to like draw the sprites, and then it would animate them into like a little GIF. Or it wasn't it wasn't a GIF. It was just an anime. It was that animated with just CSS, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So it's worth mentioning that there's a lot of things you can do in conjunction with CSS. And SVGs and Canvas and WebGL. Like with CSS, like if you go to CodePen, you can see all sorts of like crazy examples where someone builds like an entire like room, and they just wrote it in just like one div tag, and they have like a bunch of CSS afterward, like showcasing how that gets put on the page. Or you could just like write up like write up like a like David David K piano, like wrote up like a, a dog. That dog will like wag his tail constantly back and forth. It was written in just pure CSS and just pure keyframes animations. So that's something you won't necessarily practically do on most websites just because, like, writing it out that way can be very complicated because you have to like specify hey, I need 30px here and like 50px on this rectangle here, and they have to come out to be the exact same size position. So traditionally, you would just like draw it on like Illustrator and then animate it afterward and group it a certain way and just package it up. But you can apply CSS afterward to handle those animations. One thing that's worth mentioning when it comes to like different CSS properties or, or, or different things when, when you're when anything's on a page, and we did do a whole topic already on like everything you should know about CSS. But if you're building out like an e commerce website, right? And, and we haven't mentioned this on previous episodes, or maybe we have, but you can use something called like a CSS sprite, which is what you're saying. Where you like have one image asset and then like there's like 20 images on that asset and then that that's how like you figure out like, hey, take this part of the image and render this part of the page and take another image from this giant image and then render that on the page, and it saves you like it saves you from loading one giant or several smaller images that take up more space than one giant image. Did you have any other questions regarding like other things you could do in like CSS and animations for building like the highly interactive experience?
1: No, I mean, th- that one's actually pretty like easy and in- compared to everything else, And it's a topic we already kind of covered in episode, it's going to be episode four, so you guys can go back and listen to that one in more detail, but the interesting one was the other ones. And just as a side note, when it comes to CSS rights, uh, you might not run across those that often anymore, because the whole purpose behind those was to save up, because back in the Day uh, when you made a request, it was expect- back in the days of HTTP 1.1. Uh, you used to have to, like, you were limited by the amount of requests you could make to a certain URL. But now that we are mostly using HTTP 2, uh, you can reuse the same connection multiple times. And, it's, and you're not going to get, so it, it, you're not going to get, like, basically penalized for downloading multiple assets. So it's not as popular, but it's still kind of cool to
0: know. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know that much about HP2. Or is that standard out already?
1: It's a standard. Uh the way it works is basically it depends on just what your servers like like serving up. Obviously, that's where you get more into the backend stuff, which is the stuff I love. <laughs> so that's where you get into like where you configure your Apache Instagram, Nginx, whatever you're using to like what type of connections it's gonna use, what type of TLS. Uh it's still stuff that a lot of times you don't think about, but they can actually make a they actually matter when it comes to like Loading assets and how long it's gonna take to set up the HTTP connection. Yeah, we don't have to get into it right now, but it, yeah, it's it's more of the Back in nerdy stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, this is like a this is definitely like a heavy front end topic, but there are back end implications to this as well. Especially when you're building out like a like a 3D game system, you're gonna have to think about like using something like a what is that thing? It's that like. For, so, so you can like subscribe, like changes right away. It's Like, uh, I forgot what it's called. Like the IO, port, uh, what? Oh, I? Socket.IO. Socket.IO, yeah, Socket.IO, and whatever that's running behind the scenes, which is something else. I forgot. But you would generally run like a socket.io. yes. You do need
1: your backend too.
0: That would be that would tie into yeah, the backend you need parts. A... Oh, also, like when you're building like a multiplayer game experience, you'd run something like Socket.IO, and. It gets more complicated in that you have to think about how you would build like a multiplayer video game at that point because you have to deal like you would have things like that are rendering on the client side and it's sending back information like, hey, here's a clear player coordinates, here's where the user is moving, and then here's where all the other players are in the scene, right? So you're constantly reporting back information and sometimes like when you're thinking about a traditional video game and how it's built out the client generally will render a lot of physics calculations but then the back end will do calculation checks against that so it's like running two instances of the same engine essentially like doing twice as much work but those are just like some back end considerations if you're thinking about more of like the multiplayer experience with webgl canvas whatever so if you're thinking about something like building out Figma for instance like the platform where you can like interactively design with other d- designers and developers that's when you have to think about like multiplayer support and how your backend's gonna handle it and how you're gonna handle the socket IO instances, how you're subscribed to different player coordinates, et cetera, that was worth mentioning. I did want to cover briefly like at least like the selection criteria for like, just generally speaking, this isn't like exactly frame or rule for like how you select different tools and technologies for building interactive experiences. But this is just like my general like thought process, I guess you could say. If you're building out something that's like basically a video game of sorts, right? Like you need to have shader support, you need to have lighting support, you need like a 3D image or a camera, or you need particle effects that are very hard to describe in traditional DOM elements or canvas or whatever, you would generally use WebGL. It's generally the overkill solution. It's not something you'd pick out right, right away straight off the bat. So you would think something like, for instance, Figma, which is that tool where you interact with, design with other developers and designers, you would traditionally think that tool is built in just HTML Canvas, but it's actually running WebGL. It actually has a fallback to HTML Canvas. If you inspect the element on the page, you can actually see like, where the element gets instantiated. That's because like if you're doing like different shaders and different elements on the page, you can't describe that with HTML Canvas. If, if you're doing something like, that doesn't require shader support, that's when you use something like HTML canvas. So like something simple, like a bunch of balls bouncing on the screen, for instance, right? Maybe the user hovers over and there's a bunch of interactive effects, like almost like a mesh paper kind of feel as you hover on the screen. So something like more simpler, you'll see that more more frequently than WebGL. So something that, that requires a lot of re-renders, something that requires a lot of interactions and at like a specific size frame, that's when you use that. If not, you'll resort to CSS or SVGs. And generally speaking, we're we talking about performance. Depending on what you're trying to accomplish, SVGs generally tend to be, at least in my opinion, some of the most important things you can have. Just because if you're just throwing like a simple DOM element on the page and it's like, hey, this is this, this rectangle or star-shaped SVG, it's literally just, just a straight DOM element, right? There's no like calculations that it's really handling that wouldn't be handling on other HTML elements. But with HTML Canvas, like there's always like a re-renderer that constantly gets executed for every change that happens on the screen, and that could be very expensive computationally when on the page. There's also if you're dealing with like CSS properties like transform functions, that also causes a lot of repainting of your of your browser onto the page, and that is also considered a fairly expensive calculation as well. So those are just some things to consider when you're kind of comparing different options for building highly interactive websites. It just depends on your problem and what you're trying to accomplish. Did you have anything else to add on that before we move on to the next topic, which is like some more examples of kind of like creative developers or creative websites?
1: No, you kind of explained it a lot. I actually learned a lot, especially about WebGL, because areas I'm not super familiar with, so.
0: Yeah, I remember spending days digging into that topic. It's actually very fascinating. There's a lot of things you could do with it. It's just, it does require a lot of knowledge and understanding what it's doing. Or you could just use a library and just pretend the magic doesn't, or just pretend everything else is magic. (laughs) (laughs) Because the best WebGL developers out there are generally people that have, that have experience building game engines and just like C for instance, right? Or C++. Like it's people that have worked with shaders or building out custom game engines and, 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 and those tools, right? So it can be very complicated. Like, you might have to have a computer science degree to understand, like, how to do some things on there. <laughs> That's how complicated it can be. So I always recommend using a library because it's so much simpler to use. <laughs> With a library, you just have to understand, like, basic physics. And, and and actually, physics, believe it or not, is used in, like, almost all of these different things. Uh, physics, I want to mention that physics is use very frequently when it comes to creative development. Like when you're animating something, you have to figure out how like an ease in or ease out function works and like how it feels when it's like animating. Um, just something simple like that. That's all that's all physics. You won't use that math class or physics class and development, but but if you want to become a really good developer, you you should know the basics at least. Do you think it's ready to go to examples, German?
1: Yeah. A lot of the examples are going to become kind of- Yes, they're going to be kind of like a quick overview. We're going to make sure we list these examples on the actual podcast page because a lot of them are obviously visual. So you actually know all of them are visual. So you actually need to be able to see them to actually experience them. But um, I guess I guess it's cool to talk about the main people that we know, and especially A lot of this, uh, we can mention the website Codepen. I'm assuming we make the assumption that a lot of people are familiar with the website Codepen. But in case you're not, Codepen is a website where you can kind of showcase like little things that you do, right? Like little designs and like little experiences. And I know, I know, I came across that website uh, because it's what you end up using if you're doing free Code Camp, which I know you also did. So that's, I I Mm -hmm. think that's. that's where we probably found that website out, and then you kind of start looking at other people, like and what they're doing on the website. And You're like, okay, I'm, I'm garbage. <laughs> so
0: every time you go in CodePen, it's like, I think I understand CSS pretty well, and then you go in there, it's like, I don't understand CSS at all. <laughs> like, there's so many different variations of like how you can apply all those principles mentioned earlier into creating an interactive experience. And sometimes I go in there, I'm like, I didn't know you could. You could use CSS to do this. Like it was just it was just something new to me every time I go there. But it's definitely worth checking out. There are some like prominent, I guess, code pinners, you could say that are always worth like checking out. There's one called uh, jerdan Fernard. He's like always on the front page. He is what I consider like like he's got like some of the most popular code pen on there, and uh, it's called the Last Experience, and it's just basically almost like dancing robots on a page and they're all moving in conjunction with each other. And that's all written in JavaScript. Like there, there's so many things you could do just with CSS or just JavaScript or a combination there of uh, manipulating DOM elements on the page. So definitely check that out. We'll have a link in there. Uh, Sarah Drastner is a really good one. Uh, in case you're familiar with her, she's a really big uh, proponent in, in Vue 3.0. She's all part of the core team and she has a lot of SVG, like SVG specific things that you can find on CodePen. So, for instance, you can actually use something called like a distortion filter with SVGs, which like blurs out parts of the page. And you can even apply that filter on like a video player to like change it to give like a that video like an old feel look. There were some things we didn't mention with SVGs earlier that you could do, and it's definitely worth checking her CodePen out to see what's what's possible, what's out there. Do you have any other ones you want to mention?
1: I think the ones that's mostly CSS, I know we always bring him up. He's like a meme at this point, but David K. And David K. Uh, yeah, so a lot of his stuff is really like uh, mostly like pure CSS. And Vincent, you can also plug in your, your CSS piggy that you made. Uh, or the fire, the little fire, little fire that I know you told me I actually got used in a public website.
0: Oh, when I was first learning how to do CSS like three years ago, I... Wanted to do a lightning talk for like a demo for one of the things for just like after the meeting, to just showcase like the me builds. And I remember this was like the first code pen meetup I've 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 gone to. And I just made like a, a like like basically like a little CSS fire, like a CSS campfire fire where it's like there's two X's and that indicates like the two logs and there's like a little fire thing that's coming coming out and animating, and then there's like little sprinkles coming off of it, kind of showcasing its embers coming off. And I remember putting that out, and like the same day I found out, or like a week later actually, I found out someone actually put it into their marketing portfolio. <laughs> so, and that was like one of the first code pens I wrote, I've written. Like I'm not by any means like anywhere near as good as any of these people that are prominent on CodePen. But like I, I do have enough understanding of like how it's built or how to figure it out. Oh, there there were some other sites. There were some other sites that I thought were worth mentioning because they're well known, at least in my opinion, for being like creative websites. There's one from uh, a person named Bruno Simon, who if you go to his website, there's gonna be a link in the description. It, it's like a portfolio website. You go there, but instead of just like a traditional like web page, it's like you've got like a like a little jeep and then that jeep is an entire like 3D gaming environment and like an isometric viewpoint and you can drive around there and like oh this is where this guy is like like this is what he's built and and these are some of the experiences and and like this is how to reach them and like you're just driving around you're like crashing into things as you're trying to find this information but it's a it's a very interactive experience it's a very good example when you're describing what a creative website looks like there's also another one from a guy named Ronnie Leonardi, who's also really well known for, for his portfolio website, which is like you're on a page and it's almost like you're in a 2D sc- scroller game, right? And you can like scroll left to right. And as you're scrolling to the right, like almost like you're on a MySpace page, you're scrolling to the right and definitely like different things are happening and different things are appearing on the page. It's almost like you're playing like a Super Mario Brothers game and you're just seeing things come up and you're seeing like the roles and experiences and skills. So, I'll put that in link description or put it in link description just so you can see it. Do you have any other ones you want to add on, German? Off the
1: top of my head. No. Oh, actually, a lot of uh, I I couldn't find it, but there was this one uh, agency website. I know we already mentioned Labs. We mentioned 321, those websites. There was another one that came out a while ago that was also pretty interesting. If I find it, I will. We will go ahead and link it on the uh, notes. Uh, I was trying to look for it earlier.
0: Uh, All right. Do you think it's uh, time for dessert time?
1: Yeah. Side note, we actually, full disclosure before this episode, we wasted like a good 15 minutes on Bruno's website playing with the cars. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the third time is a little section where we kind of like uh, go ahead and let you guys know about what's going on in our lives and things like that. So Vincent, do you want to tell us what's going on in your life at this very moment or in general?
0: One of the things that I've gone into recently is dancing. And this is definitely a weird time to be, to be a dancer but <laughs> it's because it's COVID. But I've actually joined a dance team, like, like, like a dance team where we're actually pref- we're doing like a dance choreography where it's like we practice a certain sequence of moves and 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 patterns with a with a dance partner uh, over in like a like a show. And, and it's all synced up to like a like a certain soundtrack that we've like already pre-selected ahead of time, and that soundtrack has like different emotions, different beats at certain points in times. So it's like depending on like what what that soundtrack is playing, like we're matching our movement patterns to that choreography if that makes sense so i'm learning what it's like to do dance choreography and learning what it's like to be part of a dance team and we're actually i think we're actually performing like later this year in orlando like hopefully if covid like goes away and everything and it's it's a it's a cool experience like i've never done anything like this before i've been like getting like hardcore into dancing i've been doing this for like four or five months and i've been like at least from what people have told me i'm slowly almost getting to the advanced level where I can like make up my own dance moves. Yeah. That's just, that's just me right now. What about you, German?
1: I'm good so so far it's just been like the start of the year maybe by the time this episode releases I'll be back to working only in view uh, which I'm excited about because I like Vue. and I I haven't actually I, I know I talk about it a lot but I actually haven't really worked with it in like a year and a half at this point so uh, <laughs> so I'll be, I'm excited about that other than that it's been kind of a good start to the year and hopefully it's um, hopefully... Everything kind of like, I guess, I'm just looking forward to this year and hopefully it's a better year than last year was, right? Because of all the events that happened. Ooh, side note, my son can actually almost starting to walk. So that's going to be
0: How interesting. Is
1: Elias is now nine months. He's going to go for his 10 months. His, his birthday is in April. so.
0: Oh, you gotta tell me when that's going to happen. I'll show up and bring his bring a gift for his one year birthday.
1: Well, bring me a gift because his birthday is literally the next day after my birthday. So,
0: oh, okay. I think I think that's pretty much it for this episode, right, German? So definitely, uh, if you found this episode interesting, or if you like want to follow us on Twitter to see when we have our next episodes or or, or, or next events, uh, definitely hit us up on Coach Dev on Twitter. We'll also like in the future possibly promote like free swag as well for people who like leave us a review on iTunes or email us or or just contact us on the page or tweet us out. That's definitely a work in progress. So definitely look forward to that. And we'll see you in the next one. Take care, guys. Thanks for dining with us on Code Chefs. We hope we satisfied your hunger. For show notes and more insider info on today's topic, visit our website at www.codechefs.dev. Plus, follow us on Twitter at CodeChefsDev. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and join us back here for the next one. Uh, Check, please.